So the Lord's been working in my heart in an unexpected and challenging way the past uh, few days. And I couldn't quite figure out why. You know, when God gets the attention in your heart, it's like different than just other things. At least I find that's true. And then suddenly it hit me. Oh, right, silly boy, Stromer, you're talking about the heart this morning. <laughs> and then I immediately thought of James 1, 3, 1, in the, as the old King Jimmy puts it, be not uh, many teachers, <laughs> for you shall receive the greater judgment. So the Lord's been at work in my heart this week in a special way. And so we're just going to have to sit back for a minute and see what the Lord's got in mind here this morning. Um, as we start off, I just thought we'd do a little bit different in, in starting off. Um, it's difficult to pray for the message, and I'm going to do that. But I'd just like you all to be quiet for a minute or two in your own hearts. Open your hearts to the Lord. Ask Him to open your heart to Him this morning, because I believe that the Lord has a special word for us this morning. And so do that for a minute or two in quiet, in your chair, and uh, I will conclude that moment of silent prayer with a prayer out loud. And then we'll go into the Word. Dear Heavenly Father, we're thankful that we can open our hearts to you as individuals and as a gathered community this morning called Evergreen Church. We thank you for those that are visiting this morning as well and watching online, and we pray for them as well this morning uh, for their hearts to be open before you. Father, you know there's a lot going on in our church, and Lord, this morning we long for the view from heaven and a word from heaven that speaks to our hearts. Lord, you want your people to hear. So we humbly ask that you would grant us that kind of hearing this morning, each in his or her own heart and also as a body. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I believe we live in a time when we must keep especially conscious of the fact that God is always working in our hearts. Sometimes that's kind of hidden from us. And when it's hidden from us that God's working in our hearts, we can let life out there distract us, you know, events overseas, events here in, you know, in our country, events anywhere, really, distract us from being conscious daily, day in and day out, weekly, that God's at work in our hearts. So, and when we kind of forget that or, you know, just look at outer incidences, oh, that's an outer thing or that's something to do with somebody's acting or behaving or the way I'm behaving. When we think that way and forget about sort of like God working in our hearts from heaven, so to speak, we get kind of earthbound, you know, and then we're left to our own devices and things like that. Um, so I want to talk a little this morning about that and keeping our heart open to the Lord. And just to start with what I've called in the title, The View from Heaven, which is not a topic I felt even comfortable talking about. I'm kind of, uh, uh, you know, have a great sort of fear of talking about it, but that's the way I felt the Lord wanted me to open this morning and launch out. So that's what we'll do. 
And I want to begin with the book of Revelation, which I think is, you know, it's the last book in the New Testament. And then we're going to go into the first book of the New Testament, look at some words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. Um, But the book of Revelation, I think, opens us to the view from heaven uh, in a way like nothing else does. But the thing I want us to see in the opening verses, and that's all we're going to do this morning is in Revelation, don't expect me to interpret the book for you. (laughs) Been there, done that about 17 different ways. uh, And uh, you can talk to me about that later. Well, I'm not sure about any of those ways. But uh, I think because I missed the essential point for a long time, of the book of Revelation, and I don't want us to miss it as we launch off this morning. So I'm just going to read a few verses here. This is just the beginning six verses of Revelation. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him, Jesus, to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw. That is, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take heart and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is, who was, and who is to come, and from the seven spirits before the throne and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom, uh, to be a kingdom and priests, to serve his God and Father, to him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. So here in the opening chapter, especially verse 1, we're given the key to understanding the book. And this is what I missed for a long time. The word revelation in the Greek there is is the word apocalypse or disclosure or unveiling. And what is happening there is that God the Father has given the Son a revelation to give to John the Apostle, to give to the seven churches. But the key is that it's a revelation of Jesus Christ. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. And if we miss that, we miss what the entire book is about. And we get into all kinds of interesting interpretations and eschatologies and things like that. So, to start with, don't miss the fact that the lens through which what follows must be understood as a revelation of Jesus Christ. So, he gives that revelation to John the Apostle. And John gives it to the churches because the view from heaven goes through Jesus from the Father to John to seven specific churches in Asia. Um, And those churches are um, in certain locales in Asia. And you'll find those messages uh, in chapters 2 and 3 of the book of Revelation. So the book is about Jesus Christ. That is the key. Uh, it op- you know, the book opens by revealing that God the Father gave a message to his son Jesus, and Jesus gave the message to the apostle John for the seven churches in Asia. And then that message is found in chapters 2 and 3. And it is the view from heaven, which is what I want to emphasize. It is the view from heaven. <clears throat> it is not the view from the earth, or an earthly view. 
And how many of you know churches that are stuck with a view from earth are going to get into all kinds of trouble? We need the view from heaven. Because apart from the view from heaven, the church is left with the view from the earth. Also significantly, this is an apostolic message. The word send or sending or sent, depending on what translation you got in verse 1 there, <coughs> is, is the word apostolos, which is apostle, a sent one. So God the Father is sending the Son, giving the Son this revelation to take to, to do what he wants with it, basically. And Jesus does only the things that the Father wants him to do. So he gives it <coughs> to, he's got to get this message to the churches. So he gives it to John, who's stuck on the Isle of Patmos, to give to the churches. And it's an apostolic message. It's a super important message. It's not Paul saying in one of his epistles to the Corinthian church or wherever, I have no word from the Lord, but I say this to you as someone who is, you know, experienced and wise. It's not that kind of a message. It's an important message from the throne in heaven uh, to these churches. So it's an apostolic message. That's the kind of sending that's taking place there. So just to reiterate, God the Father has given this message to Jesus, this revelation to give to John, to give to the seven churches. Now, I'm not going to go into chapters 2 and 3, but I want to say something that's got a bearing when we get to the Sermon on the Mount in, the, in a moment that might help it come, come more alive to you, and it has to me. Um, if you do look into chapters 2 and 3, which I suggest that you do in your own study sometime, just spend some time with the chapters 2 and 3 in uh, Revelation. Here's a few things to keep in mind. Notice that the message to the churches is not to the world. It's to the church. And in chapters 2, two and 3, you'll see that the main emphasis of the message is to encourage the churches to bear witness to Jesus because it's a revelation of Jesus. To bear witness to Jesus during a time of great turmoil, trouble, distress, persecution in the body of Christ by the government of the Roman Empire. It was a militaristic state, and you did what it said or else. <laughs> but the first churches needed to get their act together first, as we used to say back in the day, um, before they can get into this new kind of grace to go through this and be this witness during tough times. So although the message is sent to encourage them to faithfulness to Jesus and the gospel during a time of great turmoil and uncertainty, it's also, and this is of utmost importance, a word sent to evaluate the state of the seven churches. And it takes a view from heaven to do that. Their, the state of those churches is being evaluated not from within their own perspectives, but from the perspective of heaven. We must not miss this. Why? Again, because apart from the view from heaven, churches are left with the view from earth. And um, getting all kinds of trouble with, with that view. So the churches are being called, the state of the church is such, of each of those churches, that you know each of them has various degrees of sin being pointed out to them and repentance that's needed. Um, you know, to get it out of their midst, to get back to basic moral obedience to the gospel. And in that way, once they're repentant, get the sin out of their midst, they'll be strengthened with God's grace to carry on their witness to Jesus and the gospel during times of great trouble, turmoil, persecution, and so on. 
they will be enabled to overcome the political, cultural, and religious obstacles to being those kinds of witnesses to proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom in their locales. Now, you know, Jesus loves his church dearly. He loves us dearly. He loved them dearly. He loves his church throughout history. Come on, he died for his church, right? <laughs> you know? And he wants them to preserve in their testimony of him, to persevere, rather, through uh, the divine calling that's on each church. Each of those churches in Asia would have had a divine calling by the apostles that set them up, that established them. I suppose today we'd call that a church's founding vision. Well, what's ours? You know, do we even know what it is? Can we articulate it? Maybe God's at work in our lives as a local gathering in, the, in that way. It's important. Um, so they need heaven's assessment for how they're doing, and that's what they're getting. Again, if they don't get the view from heaven, they're what? Stuck with the view from earth. Also notice, if you study in chapters 2 and 3, just how intimate a personal knowledge Jesus has of those churches. He's ascended to heaven, but the Spirit's at work on earth in their lives. And there's a oneness between the Father and the Son and the Spirit. Notice when you study those chapters, and a lot of you are familiar with them already, just how intimate that knowledge Jesus has of each church. And, that, and notice also that the message isn't addressed just to one individual, but to the church as a gathered community in, a, in, a one, in one spot, as a local gathered community. That's similar to how most of the epistles are, are done. The apostles have admonitions, encouragements, blessings, and so on to various churches, Corinth, Galatia, Ephesus, and so on and so on. As I was studying for this, I thought, well, yeah, in a sense... This is just another epistle from John. We call it the book of Revelation, but it's really another epistle. It's just going to a lot of churches instead of just one or one individual. So the question before us this morning, if it's Jesus' church throughout history, now listen to this, if it's Jesus' church throughout history and he loves it, he's its shepherd, he's going to care for it, he looks after his sheep, why would he ever stop doing that? Even today, even for us, why would he leave us without a message from heaven? Now, I don't think for a minute that he has. And so the question then becomes, where can we, the American church or us as a local community in a part of the American church, find the message from heaven for us? Well, I believe it's found in the first book of the New Testament, in Matthew's Gospel, in the Sermon on the Mount. Now, you may have never thought of that switch like that, but it's been dawning on me for quite a long time. So let's take a few minutes to see why the Sermon on the Mount is the view from heaven for us today. And I particularly want to focus on the fact that uh, the sermon is not merely about outer behavior. This is key. But in the Sermon on the Mount, we hear the heart of Jesus speaking to our hearts. And that's what we often miss. So Jesus is just not on about changing your outer behavior. Friends, he's into redeeming the heart, transforming the heart. 
If you don't think that's what the gospel is all about, just read some of the prophetic stuff in the Old Testament. They're always on about Israel being, you know, having hardened hearts and wayward hearts and hearts of stone and hearts so desperately wicked that they don't even know their hearts are wicked. The gospel penetrates way beyond outer behavior to redeem the human heart, to redeem our our wayward heart. Jesus and the Father are one at heart. Part of the function, maybe the whole function of Christian discipleship and following Jesus, I think, is making more and more our hearts on a regular basis one with Jesus to become one with the Father. Jesus prayed in John uh, 17, Father, I pray that they may be one as I am one, that their hearts may be one. So part of the redemption of Christ goes that far. And so the Sermon on the Mount is a view from heaven. And in it we hear Jesus' heart speaking to our heart. I think this is most precious, my beloved. We know that after his resurrection, Jesus ascended to heaven. And we saw that in the book of Revelation, our Lord is giving a message to the Apostle John from heaven. Well, it's the same thing in the Incarnation, only different. The Father sent the Son into the world from heaven. That's in 1 John 4, uh, 14 to 15. And in the Sermon on the Mount, we have a message, a word from heaven in Jesus' teachings. He's giving it to us as part of his incarnational life and his experience here on earth. He's not broadcasting it uh, from some huge PA system in the sky. He doesn't work that way. Uh, wouldn't do any good anyways, would it? I mean, who would listen, especially these days? Oh, it's just some AI thing happening, you know. Now, the placement of the sermon in Matthew's gospel is super important. Um, you'll find the sermon in both Matthew's gospel and Luke's gospel. In Luke's, it's much shorter. In Matthew's gospel, it's placed first, placed first early on, and it's the first of five major teaching segments in Matthew's gospel. You know, so you have the parables, then you have the end-time discourse and how to live in community and things like that. But the Sermon on the Mount uh, comes first. And here's what my pastor friend, Mike Osminski, he's a friend and a colleague in ministry up in Michigan, explained. And I quote him because he really nailed it. Quote, the sermon is first, is the first of the five uh, teaching segments in Matthew's Gospel because it represents the most basic teaching that followers of Jesus receive on their way to being disciples and making disciples. The sermon's placement by the early church at the beginning of the first gospel indicates just how foundational and seminal the instruction was for the early church and for us today. End of quote. Now, as I was researching this, I discovered that the early church fathers took this very seriously. In their view, anyone who came to them to follow Jesus was instructed in the Sermon on the Mount and had to get their act together, whether it took a month or a year, in some cases, before they would even let them be baptized. Now, that may be stretching a New Testament point, but it brings out the seriousness of how they took, their, you know, the early leaders of the early church took the Sermon on the Mount. It was preparatory. It was the, it's the basic foundational teaching of, uh, you know, how to live the Christian life on earth as it is in heaven. 
because it's the view from heaven that Jesus is giving them. So it's not enough just to believe rightly. You had to live rightly, or as the theologians would say, orthodoxy plus orthopraxy is essential. That's for, that's for you eggheads out there. <coughs> um, just kidding. I love it. Somebody said to me once, oh, Charles, you're so intellectual, or something like that. And I said, well, who's not, in, who's, who's not intellectual? Who, what human being doesn't, you know? I mean, people, we throw these things around, right? Um, anyway, that was a fun conversation. Um, so you can get another sense of the importance of the sermon's placement in the early scenes of Matthew's Gospel. If you consider just the first four chapters before you get to chapter 5, in the first four chapters... We get this amazingly compressed, time-for-shortened timeline of these major events in Jesus' life. And it concludes in chapter 4 with, um, uh, you know, Jesus and the disciples going all over, you know, the hillsides and the towns, preaching repentance, healing the sick, preaching the kingdom, etc., and so on. And then suddenly with chapter 5, it kind of, there's kind of, everything kind of comes to a halt. And as I was thinking about this, I thought, yeah, it's like Jesus says to the guys, well, you guys, you know, we've been very busy. You're very, it's been a very exciting time for you. But now it's time to stop and rest, and I need to teach you some things. So let's slow down here. And so we read, when he saw the crowds, he went up to a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to sat down and began to, to teach them. If you've ever seen uh, the, any of the episodes of The Chosen, there's an episode where that takes place, and it's quite well done. It's you know how that all comes together. Uh, I give them high marks for how they did that. So he began to teach them. And what teaching? Jesus is not mincing words. He's not tickling ears. Do not be angry with a brother, he says. But if you're angry, go and be reconciled. Settle a matter quickly if anyone is taking you to court. Don't lust after a man or a woman. Turn the other cheek. Go the extra mile. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Store up treasures in heaven, not on earth. Don't worry about what you will eat or drink or wear. You've got to remember, a lot of these people hearing that were poor, and they were desperate for stuff. What do you, what, I can just imagine what they were thinking about, you know. What do you mean, Jesus? Don't worry about what I should eat and drink. Give to the one who asks of you. Do not refuse anyone who wants to borrow from you. Seek first the kingdom of God and God's righteousness, etc., and so on. I mean, just spend some time looking over those passages in your study time, reflecting on how those people lived back then. And, you know, Jesus saying to the mil- you know, people in, you know, under military rule, and he's you know, saying, go the extra mile. And, and in their minds, they're, they're living under a military and said, I don't want to go one inch with this guy. And he's saying, go the extra mile. And by the way, do it with your heart. This is tough stuff, folks, but it's basic heaven teaching for earth. So in these statements, Jesus sets forth what I like to call the radical vision of heaven 
to us wayward souls here on earth. It's the basics of the kind of life we are to live as we follow him. I call these statements by Jesus the duties or the responsibilities that we have that we're called by him to fulfill as his followers. And get this, they're non-negotiable. You can't call up a constitutional amendment and get some of these things changed, get them out of the way. You take them or leave them. That's what I mean. Jesus is not mincing words here. He's not tickling our ears, not anybody's ears. There's no amendments to these uh, statements of Jesus. We can't revise any problems we may have with them. A lot of people, they don't revise them, but they say, well, I'll just, I like these four over here, but these are just too ideal for me. So we take the sermon as a piecemeal thing, you know, or we put the whole thing up there as an ideal in the sky for the next life. Uh, Do you know that the Bible doesn't generally speak in terms of ideals? It speaks in terms of what the heart is doing down here with its life. And that's where Israel got in trouble a lot. And that's where the church over the centuries has gotten in trouble a lot. I mean, come on, crusades? (laughs) Come on, 100 years war, 30 years war? This is Christian stuff? Anyway, I'll shut up about that now. Anyway, so um, in these duties and responsibilities, Jesus is setting forth a word from heaven about the kind of life we are to live here on earth. Now, it's extremely difficult sometimes to accept this and run with it and get before the Lord and have him deal with it because it's not merely about outer behavior, as I've been harping on. For in the Sermon on the Mount, we hear the heart of Jesus speaking to our hearts to get your act together. To get your act together, and that's often hard to do. I'm going to read to you even some tougher words now from the Sermon on the Mount. Just to ponder. And then I'll close with a little story. This is from Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount. You have heard it said to people long ago, do not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Anyone who says to his brother, Racha, that's a real condemnatory term uh, that people used back then. It's a real term of division. I don't know. We don't hear any division on social media, derision on social media these days, do we? From Christians I'm talking about. That's as strong as rebuke as I ever give anybody. Not you guys. I'm probably being selfish doing that because I don't want any stronger revision or rebuker coming to me from the Lord. So I'm gentle in my, my rebukes. So anyone who says to his brother, Raka, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was the ruling, a high-level ruling body you know, that settled theological and moral disputes and arguments and took, you know, you took concerns to them. There's a slight resemblance to like what a session would be at Evergreen there, although the session has to 
submit to larger authorities in the presbytery. Anyone who says to you, you fool, will be in danger of hell fire. You have heard it said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in her heart. Again, you have heard it said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but keep your oaths that you have made to the Lord. And by the way, Jesus goes on, don't swear at all, either by heaven or for it's God's throne, or by earth for his footstool, or by Jerusalem for it is the city of the great king. Do not swear. This is about taking oaths. Do not swear by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Simply let your yes be yes and your no be no. Anything beyond this comes of evil. You have heard that it's said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the cheek, Turn to him and the other one also. And if someone wants to sue you, take your tunic and let him have your cloak as well. Now, the cloak back then was pretty much sacred. If you, lent, if you gave your cloak back in the Old Testament times for security, for a loan you got, the fellow you gave the cloak to to get the money or whatever you needed for the day had to give you that cloak back at the end of the day. That was a stipulation. This is serious stuff Jesus is saying here. How does it apply to us today? If someone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who asks, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You have heard it said, and this is a tough one, this last one. Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. A lot of hating of the enemy going on these days in Christianity. We all stop and flip this stuff out into the world out there. No, 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 no. Judgment begins at the house of God. How's it doing in your heart? How's it doing in my heart? Love your, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Why? that you may be the sons of your Father in heaven. For he causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward do you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? I guess they didn't like the IRS back even then. Apologies if any of you are IRS agents. And if you greet only your brothers or sisters, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. So what we're hearing is Jesus speaking to our hearts from his heart. Really tough stuff. And it's not enough that we just leave that back there. It's a view from heaven, the word from heaven for us today because we are part of the church and uh, there's no amendments to that. It hasn't been written out of the script of our lives. I'm really ashamed and embarrassed to, to admit that it took me so long to quite, kind of get to this 
but it began several years ago, and I want to close before we go to communion with a little story about that. And maybe you can find some help in my own story as I sort of wear my heart on my sleeve to you, uh, you know, to help you, and maybe you can tell me of your own stories someday, how it's happened with you. So five years ago in 2018, I went through what I would call today a, a, a personal crisis of hearing, of hearing from the Lord. Here's what happened. Uh, a couple years after 9-11, I was called uh, to work in the field of foreign policy and diplomacy. And I spent 15 years there, mainly focused on U.S.-Mideast relations. And it was an exciting time for me. I was, it was unexpected. I wasn't expecting that call. But the Lord opened doors were very wide. And in all honesty, I learned much more than I ever contributed. But I did was able, by God's grace and wisdom, to make some contributions in somewhat significant ways at times. You can ask me about that someday, and I'll try to tell you. Um, but then in 2018, during the second year of the Trump presidency, uh, I felt those 15 years coming to an end. And so I, what I usually do when that happens, I, I start praying for new direction, for the Lord to sort of at least give me a general idea of what, uh, what, what's, what's happening next. You know, I've got a lot of life left in me, I think. I've got things to say, maybe. <laughs> um, help me to understand, Lord, uh, what's going on. So I began to pray earnestly for new direction. <clears throat> you know, Lord, what would you have me to do next? And, and I enlisted, fortunately, some others were praying for me. Some of you were praying for me during that period. Thank you very much. But month after month went by, and I wasn't hearing a thing. I wasn't getting any direction. The heavens were silent. And that kind of puzzled me, but that's, you know, that happens sometimes. And then a few more months passed, and still no, no direction, um, and even though I was praying and my prayer partners were praying regularly. And like I said, usually during these transition periods, I get at least a glimmer of what's going on, but wasn't getting anything this time. Um, and I was getting a little frustrated, frankly. Uh, couldn't quite figure out what was going on. Um, and also I was embarrassed to have to write to my prayer partners yet again. So the heavens are still silent. <laughs> I know it's been half a year, but... I don't know. Please keep praying if you want to. Wish I could report something good. <laughs> Linda remembers this time. She was praying. That's for sure. And then it happened. You know, let me just add that I thought, well, maybe there's some secret sin in my life. I wasn't aware of any. And I'm pretty good, I think, at examining what John Peck used to call examining your own eyeballs. Like, what, what's going on, you know. It kind of takes a little training to do that, but I was pretty good at that, I thought. So I thought, but I did think, you know, well, maybe there's some secret sin in my life so God shut, the, shut up the heavens. But I wasn't aware of anything. But then it happened. After months and months, one day, I, I, I heard this very clearly. Open your heart to me. That's all, just open your heart to me. That went on for several days, and it got, that kind of got like, uh, okay, open my heart to you. But that's not what I was after, Lord. I was after what I'm supposed to be doing next. <laughs> what ministry, what work, where are you calling me to do next? So I'm, open your heart to me. So I got a little, like, annoyed. And then I got annoyed at myself because I didn't know what it meant. 
because I thought I had an open heart to God. I've had decades to open my heart to the Lord, and he's dealt with me in this and that and the other thing. It just keeps going on and on and on because until we get to be with him. But, it, but I've opened your heart to me, opened your heart to me. So I didn't know what was going on. And then I got even more freaked out in this inner crisis because I realized, oh, my, not only don't I know what to do or how to open my heart, the only way out of this is going to be, i got to admit this to the Lord. <laughs> and I was afraid to do it. I'm sorry to say, embarrassed, ashamed to say. I was afraid to tell the Lord I didn't know how to open my heart to him. I, did, I was like puzzled, and I thought, but I've got to do it. So I plucked up my nerve one day, and in prayer, I opened my heart to him. And I wish I could take time now to, to you know, I mean, maybe that just sounds childish or ridiculous that, you know, a man my age would be afraid to open his heart to the Lord after walking with the Lord for decades. But that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. Uh, and um, so finally I did in prayer, and uh, I wish I could spend enough more time this morning uh, telling you about what happened next. But in brief, what happened um, is that uh, the Lord began to slowly reveal to me not some new direction for some new ministry or, you know, a new cool thing I could do out there for him. But he began to reveal to me things in here, areas of my heart where on one hand I thought, I, I thought I was already done doing business with the Lord there. I thought that was all fully renewed, that area. Nope, got more to do. Uh, areas that I was totally unaware of that even needed renewing. I was like, it was a complete surprise to me. No, we're going to work on that too. These weren't; these didn't happen all at once. Just as a kind of a steady progress. So I didn't even know some places exist, and etc. and so on. Um, and he was using that word from heaven in the Sermon on the Mount, basically to do that. And he's been doing that ever since. It just keeps unpacking itself, especially this speaking of the, of it to the heart. I mean, he's using other scriptures too, but that's been like primary for about five years now. I'm seeing more and more that the Sermon on the Mount teaches us about my wayward heart. I'm calling attention to these un unacknowledged places of blind spots and places where God wants to work his redeeming grace more and more into me, and I believe into all of us. And I've learned also that he does want to work this grace into us at its deeper levels to keep us growing as individuals, as families, and as a local church. So that's a little of my story. Um, perhaps you have one of your own, or you may have one soon. In the Sermon on the Mount, we are called to The Imitation of Christ, which is the title of a great classic book by Thomas Akempis. You should get a copy and reflect on some of the stuff in it. In the sermon, Jesus sets forth what life is like in heaven and how those who follow him will imitate that life on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, let us as one of your local churches forget about trying to figure out the book of Revelation and instead seek you for a revelation of yourself. That's what we need, Lord. That's what you gave to John after your ascension to heaven. And that's what you brought to us in your incarnation through the Sermon on the Mount. 
You gave us duties and responsibilities to fulfill day in and day out that go beyond mere outer behavior to our hearts, to renew our hearts. And we thank you for so great a redemption, Lord. Teach us, Lord, in the days and weeks and months and years ahead how to increasingly fulfill the duties and responsibilities that you give us there, that you set forth in the sermon. For it is both the view from heaven and the word from heaven. And it is your heart, Jesus, your heart for us. As a church, we want to build upon that, Lord. And as we do, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, we read that we have built on the rock. May we be so wise, Lord, for your glory and purposes here on earth as it is in heaven. Amen.